it has definitely shifted more support for the Democrats more recently because of how President Trump had, you know, really casted the COVID-19 and how he was blaming it to the Chinese community and how that continued to exasperate and led to ultimately the rise of anti-Asian violence and sentiments. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Christine Chen, a co-founder and executive director of APIA Vote. That's a national nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that works with local and state community-based organizations to mobilize Asian American and Pacific Islander communities to greater electoral and civic engagement. Christine is a senior leader in her space and one of the key people to talk to to understand what's happening in her part of the political ecosystem. We had a very good conversation about her career and her current work. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Christine Chen at APIA Vote. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. So, Christine, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, my name is Christine Chen, Executive Director for Asian and Pacific Islander American Vote. I've been here in Washington, D.C. for over 28 years, originally from Ohio, so I still consider myself a Buckeye. Um, But I've centered my work essentially focusing on helping the Asian American Pacific Islander communities um, build political power and recognize and understand how this infrastructure needs to be built and how to work within it. And I, I have, having looked at your biography, I know that you really have put in a career into that. Where did you first kind of get interested in that intersection of politics and, and identity? Right. Well, you know, when I first started out in my career, we have to uh, recognize that there was no internet, no um, email. And so there was very little information about Asian American uh, and Pacific Islanders in politics or policy. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. This is probably by the time I was in high school, it's probably about seven or eight years after the um, killing of Vincent Chin, which really was the hate crime that really galvanized the community um, nationwide to identify ourselves as a community of Asian Americans and to understand how hate crimes really can impact an individual um, and a community in itself and how it cross sectors um, the diverse community, whether you're Chinese or Korean, you know, they just see your face and they just assume that you're one community and hate is hate. And so with that context, I also recognize that Um, There was a growing number of racial incidences that were happening on college campuses in the Midwest. And my friends had just started the organization Midwest Asian American Students Union, really to create a space for Asian American college students to be able to understand their experience in the Midwest and to provide support for one another. So that ranged everything from advocating resources to address racial incidences on your college campuses to organizing around for Asian American studies. So it's really within that context that I was first introduced to the organization Chinese Americans, which at that time in the 90s was one of four national Asian American civil rights organizations based in Washington, D.C. And that was really the first introduction in terms of that there were Asian American organizations doing advocacy work, that there were even Asian American elected officials or political appointees. But before that, I actually had no sense of that 
entire world. So that was really my first introduction into the space. So what was like your first job out of college? So essentially, it was my internship with organization Chinese Americans, and then uh, that landed me in, as a organizer for OCA. And eventually, I became a permanent staffer, and then eventually their executive director for OCA. And at that particular time, um, Asian American Pacific Islanders were voting at lower rates than uh, any other communities. And we, as the community was growing in the 2000 with a, a U.S. Census count, we recognized that as the community was growing, we were not necessarily as active when it came to voting. And so the whole concept or general idea about increasing voter participation really stemmed from my work at OCA back in the 90s. What did you learn from being executive director of a group like that? Well, that, you know, grassroots membership-based organizations have a role in politics. It's really important that everyone locally is engaged with their elected officials, whether it's at the city council level, the state level, or the federal level. Because OCA was a membership-based organization, it was a wonderful way for me to um, travel around the country, understand also the nuances of the growing population and how that also may vary, because like in Minnesota, our chapters were more working with like the Hmong um, voters or Hmong community in Minnesota versus in Las Vegas, you have more of the Filipino community. So it really gave me a great balance of understanding the diversity of the communities through our chapters, but then also understanding how they could develop relationships at different levels with their elected officials and how you could, even if you're small, you could actually still get the attention of elected officials, especially if you work in coalition with broader allies. I think that everybody who runs organizations kind of develops some theories of leadership. What have you come to? What do you think makes a good executive director of the kinds of organizations that you've run? Well, I think one of the key things that I bring to this to my job is that recognizing that everyone has value into this work and that we also have to make sure that we provide different entry points for different individuals that may have different experience in getting involved with politics or even understanding how politics works or even Asian American history. And also recognizing, and this goes back to my work in, in working with volunteers, is that trying to figure out and getting to know individuals and organizations about what their value may be and how do you cultivate that and also what is their interest and how do we marriage that with the work that we're trying to do. That's the only way we can actually bring in people into this work for the long haul and making sure that's actually sustainable. Christine, what came next for you after you left that executive directorship? With my time at OCA, I was really fortunate that we were also um, – taking the time to recognize that API Vote eventually would have to be a standalone organization, that the as the community was growing and there were more national API advocacy organizations being developed, we were still not focusing enough attention on getting out the vote and increasing voter registrations. So in the early um, 90s, you know, we always started out less than 50% of our community. And for the longest time, we just sustained the understanding that half of your, our community was ready to register and vote, but you might as well assume that the other half were not. It was really in 2020, um, after years of investment and expanding um, our partnerships with, within different communities across the country in 28 states, that we saw the big jump that finally we got 60% of our community registered and voting in this last election. It was the largest increase of any other ethnic community that we saw in the 2020 elections. So are you saying that APIA vote came out of OCA? Yes. So I was a staffer back in 1996. At that time, it was a campaign called the National Asian Pacific American Voter Registration Campaign. That was our first entree in terms of uh, creating a project, which eventually was created into an organization called APIA Vote. And did you end up running that for like an early stint before you come back to it later on in your life? Yeah. So it was a project under OCA when I was executive director. And I retired from OCA back in 2005 
took a break for a little bit, helped out with the Obama campaign back in Ohio to engage API voters. But then back in 2011, I decided to come back to API Vote. And I've been here ever since helping build the capacity of all the different organizations that we work with in doing this work. So what? tell me a little more about API Vote. So how big is it? What do you do? What's the mission? Yeah, so APAVOTE is the nation's leading nonpartisan nonprofit dedicated to engaging, educating, empowering Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. We work with trusted messengers and organizations in over 28 states. The whole philosophy is that there are already community organizations um, that are trusted messengers. So we should really try to educate them and encourage them to actually do this type of work and really help them build the capacity to actually educate their own communities in terms of the importance of voter registration and turnout and how that actually impacts their daily lives. It's really because of those investments, especially in the last 10 years, um, through trainings, through providing grants to our local partners, to working with their leadership, as well as young leaders, that we are able to build the capacity. So the numbers that people see, like in Georgia, after the 2020 elections, that didn't happen overnight. It's because year after year, for over a decade, we were actually working with local partners in that area to build their capacity to do this work. When you say it's the largest, there's a whole bunch of different organizations that are national, that are Asian American. How do you measure that? So when I say large, I, I should say it's the um, leading nonpartisan nonprofit focusing on voter registration education type of work. So there are other organizations that may do advocacy work, but for us, we're really focusing on the voter engagement and civic participation. Among nonpartisan organizations, I've noticed that some have a pro- progressive bent and some have a conservative bent. How would you place your organization in the ecosystem? In the past, I would say, you know, voting rights was not a such a partisan issue because, you know, in the past, we would advocate for the Voting Rights Act and both Democrats and Republicans were um, supportive. But unfortunately, right now, I think we would be considered more of a progressive organization just because we align with a lot of the civil rights organizations. And that's how they're being typecasted at this point. So you're working to make it easier to vote rather than harder to vote. Correct. I mean, our our work for decades really has not changed. It's always been about helping our community, which is mostly first-generation immigrants, which the reality is that a large percentage is also limited English proficient. So we've always been working with the civil rights organizations and trying to make sure that we make it as easy as possible and to make sure that there's language access to ensure that the um, immigrant voters have the capabilities that once they naturalize and become U.S. citizens, that they could also participate in civic participation. Do you work on registration and getting people to vote as well? Correct. So the work that our partners do is, is everything from voter registration, voter education, get out the vote activities and election protection work. Right. So it's everything from starting the conversation, getting them registered. But then once they're registered, we also need to educate them in terms of where the different ways that they could turn out to vote, whether it's by mail or by early voting or on Election Day. We also run an 888 API vote hotline. So that way, um, when you have questions or you come across any complications, they could call the hotline and we are able to provide them legal assistance as well as just general advice as well. When you are talking about your partners, what are you referring to? So they could be trusted messengers, nonprofit organizations. Some of them are all volunteer based. Others can be like a health clinic or a social service agency that have their own clients that they always um, outreach to. So it really varies, once again, depending on the capacity and interests of community-based organizations in a particular state. If you are covering 28 states, is that the vast majority of Asian Americans that live in those states? Yeah, so it it really depends on the interests of the community-based organizations. So initially, we started out with six organizations back in 2007, because those were the first organizations that we were able to 
convinced that they should that we should be doing this work, investing time and energy, and how that was really related to the work of advocacy that a lot of organizations were doing. Um, so it really goes back to just getting to know the community-based organizations, trying to figure out which organizations are ready and interested in doing this work. And then from there on, that's where we actually help develop trainings, go on the ground to work with our local partners to do that, help fundraise, sub-grant to them. We also have a huge mail program. So in 2020, I was able to raise enough funding to um, reach out to 700,000 AAPI households. And these are mostly either in battleground states or they were low propensity voters. When I say low propensity, that means they're first time voters or that they only vote like maybe once every four years. So those are the folks that we notice do not get contacted by the political campaigns or by the candidates in itself. So we want to make sure that they have the right information to be able to feel motivated enough to be able to cast their ballot. Do you screen those potential voters for uh, propensity to vote in any particular way? I mean, I know that there are models out there that try to anticipate which way people go or or you're shaking your head, you don't. Yeah. So as a 501c3, as a nonpartisan organization, the voter files that we have access to, we don't necessarily have modeling as what they call it for different propensities in terms of how they may vote in a certain way. So for us, we really just look at the scores in terms of how often they voted or if they're a first-time voter. Also, 18 to 29-year-olds are not as consistent voters, so we also focus on that age range as well. Are there groups on the left or the right that are really trying to do what I just suggested and, and aim at a particular swath of the electorate that's Asian? Yeah, so I would say there's a couple of things that have been transforming over the decade. So especially in the last four or five years, um, a number of our local nonprofits who have a 501c3 status, they decided that they really needed to create a C4 so that way they could get more involved with partisan activities. So like in Georgia, our partners there, they have a C3 and a C4, so they activate them at different times. So like in January 6th, during the runoff, I think um, there were more resources that were put to the C4. So they did more partisan activities at that particular point. Overall, nationwide throughout the decades, what I've seen between the Democrats and Republicans is that the Democrats uh, had invested early on, even as back as the Clinton years in the 90s, where they would hire a particular staffer focusing on the API constituent group at the DNC. The RNC didn't do that until probably... Uh, a decade later, a decade or probably like 15 years later. Um, and so that's why we also see a difference in terms of APIs running for office. The majority of them are um, Democrats, that, and especially of those that are winning and being supportive. You see a handful of those who are Republican. That's increasing a little bit more in the last four years or so. But that's like a huge difference in terms of what I saw on the partisan side. You've been more than a decade running this organization. What what keeps you interested and excited about your work? Well, you know, luckily, I'm still enjoying myself. I really value the little wins that we see as the community continues to grow and how new people get excited and is introduced to this world and understand like how issues that they really care about, how that actually um, is impacted by when they actually do organize and go vote, right? I would have to say, like, if I was only focusing at the national level and what's happening, I probably would, would have quit a long time ago. So it really is because of the work that we do at the local level and seeing how new people enter in this space and get excited and, and how they're able to, like, feel like they're they're actually making a difference. Especially even right now in the height of the rise of anti-Asian violence, I would say there's so many more community individuals and organizations being created that are now leaning in and taking an interest where they were never involved with politics, but now they're trying to figure out how this is all connected to the work that they're doing. Explain some of those wins that you've seen. Like, Give me some examples of things that over the last while that you've really you know, had your heart warmed by or whatever. So, okay, I'll take Nevada. For the longest time, you know, people were just looking at Nevada as like, oh, it's 
Las Vegas, um, not even recognizing that the Asian American population was growing in Las Vegas, particularly, that many of the casino workers that you see are Asian immigrants. And so for the longest time, they were their the community-based organizations were all volunteer-based. And um probably close to a decade ago, some individuals who I had been working with through OCA as well as JCL, Japanese American Citizens League, a number of them realized like, well, we we really should be organizing a nonprofit that is fully staffed. Because when you look at other community-based organizations across the country in each of the cities, there's always at least one nonprofit that are fully staffed and is and is also that does that provides social services. And so when I worked with Vita Lin at that particular point, who was devising this new organization. At that point, she was like, oh, I'm not sure we want to do voter registration. Um, But luckily, a lot of her board members who knew me um, understood the value of what I was trying to relay to her about the importance of when you actually do mobilize and organize your community, you can also get the attention of your elected officials as well as funders and the media, which then ultimately will help you in terms of your other work as a social service agency. So they actually started focusing and incorporating voter registration into their work right from the beginning. And because of that, they actually got attention after the midterms and the general elections about the API electorate. At that particular point in time, if you would look at even 2016, 2012, and even as early as um, 2008, People were starting to see how Nevada voters, how the elections were really close, whether it's the Senate race or at the presidential level. Even Senator Reid, after his last election, he actually credited that the Filipino vote actually gave him the extra edge for him to actually win. And so ACDC, which is the nonprofit that we work with in um, Las Vegas, they were created right around that time. And so by them building and doing this type of work, they continue to gain the attention. And now they've actually have grown out their other services that they provide as a social service agency. And now they're like a three or $4 million um, organization. Someone else told me about a group that I think they were called the AAPI data or something that does a lot of measuring of what's going on in the Asian community. Have you run into that? So API data um, actually came out from a conversation that we um, I had with Karthir Ramakrishnan, who leads API data, how we had different um, surveys and data points that were out there, but it wasn't necessarily consolidated in one place for the other people outside the community to utilize, as well as the press. Also back in 2012, API Vote also recognized that we were missing from the narrative because there was no data and we were always missing from the surveys that was being conducted. So we invested our own dollars to go ahead and create the Asian American Voter Survey. We first conducted it with Celinda Lake and then in 2014 and ever since we've been working with API Data as well as Asian American Advancing Justice AJC. So this survey comes out every two years. It's in language. It's the only pre-election survey that's in language, that's national, that that actually consistently comes out every two years. So our new data survey will be coming out in mid-July with more more information about where our API electorate stands when it comes to Democrats, Republicans, in terms of the issues that they care about, and also in terms of their preference in terms of how they're going to vote, whether it's in person or by mail or by early vote. What have you learned over time that people ought to know about where your electorate stands? How have they been changing and where are they? Well, you know, first of all, that the API community is still one of the fastest growing communities that you see. And so you cannot ignore this growing electorate that also we've been able to provide enough information by state about this growing community. So we're trying to making sure that we de- demystify about what this API electorate looks like and what actually motivates them to vote. And a lot of it really is about whether or not political parties and campaigns are engaging with this electorate in their own backyard on a regular basis. Not once every four years, not once every two years, but are they invested in a long-term relationship, right? The other thing I would say is that um, even though we are very diverse when it comes to coming from different Asian ethnic backgrounds, 
When it comes to issues, we actually lean quite progressively, whether it's healthcare, education, jobs, immigration. The other big issue, especially right now with uh, gun control, a large majority of the community are actually in support of gun control. They're actually ranked very high environmental issues as well. So these are some of the issues that in terms of um, how they lean, they actually lean in, in, in a more progressive way. So depending on the candidates, how they land will determine whether or not they'll vote um, for a Democrat or Republican. It also depends on their relationship. Sometimes they'll vote one way at the federal level, but then because of the close relationship that they have at the local level, they may vote for another party. One of the things that has most shaped our politics, unfortunately, in the last five, six years has been Donald Trump and the move to the right and to the Trump in that party. How has that affected the Asian community? Well, if you look at the survey results throughout the years, it has definitely shifted more support for the Democrats more recently because of how President Trump had, you know, really casted the COVID-19 and how he was blaming it to the Chinese community and how that continued to exasperate and led to ultimately the rise of anti-Asian violence and sentiments that were happening. But one thing I would also say that in our survey, we also look and disaggregate the data among Indians, Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese, Japanese, American voters. Um, a large, like I said, a large segment of them identify as Democrat right now. But I will say the Chinese community, actually the majority of them um, identify as a non, a, a, don't actually identify with Democrat or, or Republican at this point. There is uh, interest to figure out, to dig deeper in terms of what information is the Chinese community getting and how is that impacting them in terms of who they decide to identify as a Democrat or, or Republican? What would you say are the cards that Republicans play most successfully to get Chinese and other Asians to go their direction? Typically, the themes that they've really focused on has been anti-communism, especially with more about with the Vietnamese population. And that has resonated more with the first generation immigrants. I think that's changing more for the second generation. The other issue is really around education. They utilize like affirmative action issues as a divisive issue to really um, try to figure out how to get support from the China, especially Chinese voters uh, to the Republican side. What's most successful for Democrats? So for Democrats, I would say they do fairly really well when it comes to civil rights issues in terms of engaging with the community to actually have more of an infrastructure and also have elected officials that are working with the community on a long-term basis. In terms of issues right now, as we see from the polling, is really about environmental issues in terms of being a champion for civil rights and protecting you against discrimination, gun control, like those type of issues. What does a day at work look like for you typically? What occupies your time? Well, honestly, that could be pre-pandemic or post-pandemic. But re regardless, I would say it's a combination of working with national organizations, uh, working in coalition, whether it's pushing for you know voting rights, legislation and policy, either at the federal level or at the local level. But then the other times is working with our staff as well as local um, volunteers and organizations at the local level to figure out what's the next step? What do we need to do to build their capacity? Are we looking at conducting a training? Are we helping them figure out their goals in terms of who to reach out to when it comes to voter registration or turnout? Where are some messaging that needs to be done? You know, it really varies. It, it, that's why I would say that my life is very full and it's uh, very fulfilling because it, it is ever-changing every year, even though we run very much a cycle because we actually do conduct elections every single year. That's something that we always try to remind everyone is that there are local elections that we have to also pay attention where by voting, we can really make a difference in terms of who's being elected and what policies are being implemented at the local level. 
And then other times, because I'm executive director, it really is also going back to fundraising, getting the attention of funders, the, of the media, about the API electorate, demystifying this community, what they look like, whether that's at the national level or at the local level. And hopefully by de- demystifying this community, then we can also let them understand the needs that this community has and why uh, we need to have put more resources into this. One thing that we did learn post the Atlanta shootings is that less than 1% of all corporate dollars go to Asian American um, Pacific Islander nonprofits, and then less than half of 1% of foundation dollars go to this community, which means that this community is very much underfunded. At the same time, we also believe that people really don't understand that the issues that the communities is facing, that people may think that there are no issues and that we don't actually have any needs. And that's why we're also being underfunded. I had talked to Sonal Shah when she was running the new Asian uh, American Asian American Fund. Yep. Yep. Is that something where your group would qualify for funds that come through them? Has anything ever happened there? Currently, right now, they're not focusing on civic participation. Uh, we are trying to educate them once again that the work that they're trying to do in terms of stopping Asian hate doesn't stop only at marches or providing services to their victims. But when they're talking about incorporating Asian American curriculum through K through 12, that means you have to influence your local school board about investing dollars into this and making it a priority. And the people that they're going to pay attention are going to be voters in their own school district. So we're trying to make that kind of case. But at this particular point in time, unfortunately, um, they're not necessarily funding this particular area. How big is your staff? So we have nine staff members. That's actually a recent growth since 2020. Um, So I actually had doubled my staff within the last few years. Starts to be more of a management challenge when you get nine people, doesn't it? Yeah, but you know what? It's been great having a management team. And the way I've always hired, I always really dig deep to making sure like what really drives the staff. So that way they understand that they really are part of a team here at API Vote. And our role is really to serve the community nationwide. And so to understand the bigger picture in terms of what we're doing as well. What you do, there's analogs in other communities, other immigrant communities, How much time do you spend talking to leaders of organizations in similar spaces in different parts of the electorate? Right. So especially in the beginning years, but even consistently now, we all work in a broader coalition. The voting rights world has a broad coalition at the national level as well as the local level. So early on in the years, it was, you know, I leaned on Voto Latino, NAACP, National Coalition of Black Civic Participation to really understand the models that they were working within. We also work with state voices where they are the main entity at, in each of the states where they bring together local nonprofits that are interested in doing voter engagement work. So that's how we access voter files, help train our local partners in terms of um, targeting and implementation in terms of best practices when it comes to voter registration and turnout. Because every state, the laws continue to change. So we really rely on working with state voices to keep on top of all the changes that are happening. Also, you know, after the census, we had worked together in these coalitions to get out the count for the census, as well as in the redistricting efforts this past year. So it's not necessarily just focusing on voter registration, but also other components of civic engagement, including census and redistricting. I've talked to some other executive directors who have groups where they get together to talk about running an entity like yours. Do you ever do any of that where you have peers that you can talk to about best practices and the life of being an executive director and things like that? Right. So I think, you know, many times, especially these days, as we're trying to come out of the pandemic and we're trying to also recognize like What does that look like? What are the challenges that we're facing as management, as well as a nonprofit that's heading into midterm elections? The executive directors, many times, will informally will get together to have those kind of conversations, to have a meal together. I think coming together, having a meal is the best time to informally be able to 
discuss the challenges that we're all having and really to try to brainstorm and help support one another in, in that case. There's also a, a number of the women's executive directors are also coming together to recognize the challenges that we may also have. That's also another space that where we're also trying to come together. Is there anyone out there that you see as a real model to look up to or or is everyone just looking up to you? Who are the leaders that you think are doing good things in similar spaces? For me, once again, I've been able to get assistance from a number of different executive directors. So for instance, I went through a training at Rockwood. And from that, I also was able to gain a cohort of other executive directors that I'm always able to call upon to ask for everything from some legal you know, questions I may have to you know, pay raises or salary bans that we're seeing um, to, or just overall, like, how are we all dealing with juggling everything with our personal life, with work as we come out of this pandemic, right? To me, I've also been able to get the support I needed within the API community, but also outside the API community. Many times, especially in the API community, what I've recognized is that, um, especially with new immigrants, they haven't had as much experience in running nonprofits or or serving on a board. So I'm able to learn a lot of different best practices outside the API space. So that way I could bring that back into this particular community and try to see if that those um, same strategies actually can work in strengthening our nonprofits. I'd recently talked to a guy who was running API in Pennsylvania, API-PA. His name is Mohan Seshadri. Do you know him? Yes. So he's running more the C4 um, organizations in, in Pennsylvania. So that's what's really exciting to see is that in the last four or five years is that our community-based organizations, not only are they gaining enough resources on the nonpartisan side, but they also recognize that they could build a entity like a C4 and also build capacity, making sure that the API vote is also being heard and outreach to um, on the C4 side. He had mentioned that he was part of building a national umbrella for groups like his. You aware of that? Yes. The Asian American Power Network, AAPN. Um, so they actually are housed and they rent um, from us at API Vote. So recently, as we are emerging out of the pandemic, instead of shrinking our footage in our office space, I actually expanded it and actually took over an entire floor and brought in six or seven other national API organizations together. That's so interesting. Who? What are the other organizations? So they're everyone like National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, National Council of Asian Pacific Americans, National Federation of Filipino American Associations. We also have a advertising agency, TDW and Co. They do a lot of uh, government contracts like with the census and HHS when it comes to outreaching to the API community, Asian Realtors um, Association, Sick American Legal Defense and a Education Fund, and then recently Asian American Power Network. I've talked also to Tung Nguyen, who uh, runs AAPI Victory Alliance, or I don't know if the name has changed since I first talked to him. Do you know him and, and his group? How does that fit in? Now that the community is growing and there's like more infrastructure, right? So that means there's more different capacities. You have C3s, you have C4s that could do a, a number of lobbying, but then you also have PACs and super PACs. Like Tung Nguyen or actually um, Shekhar with um, the Victory, Victory Alliance and stuff like that. They were first a super PAC and now they're also creating some other entities. Um but we also have other Asian American political PACs on the Democrat side, Republican side, federal, as well as local. So there's a number of that, just like any other, what we see in all the other communities. But I would say in terms of C3 and C4, it's what I see is like the networks that's being built out from the power network, as well as the Asian American Civic Engagement Fund and API Vote. They see blue do you know them? Yeah. Daisy Blue is also... Um, That's an Indian... They're, they're a volunteer... They were a volunteer-based organization. So I know that 
they're trying to figure out like if they want to become a C3 or a C4, you know, so that's why it goes back to like every four years, if anything, I'm in the job of counseling folks in terms of as new people, new communities decide to like, oh, we should really get organized and actually maintain this and do this on a regular basis. And, and a lot of times they don't even figure out who already is doing some of the things that they're doing, right? Correct. So fortunately for me that um, API has been around long enough that eventually I will hear about it and people will say, hey, you really should talk to API Vote and Christine just so you understand the lay of the land. So, you know, for me, once again, um, I welcome new entities in terms of doing this work, as long as we could really understand how we could each complement one another. Is it competitive among these organizations for fundraising and membership if they have members or is it congenial? What is that community like to exist in? You know, I think right now we're still at the beginning building stages. So for, from what I could tell, like actually a lot of the different organizations have different tax statuses. So they're going to play a different role. Also, they may be focusing on different parts of the community as well. You know, the community is so diverse. So depending on who's the trusted messenger within a particular area will determine who you're really going to be working with and who you're going to invest in. What would you like to see change in the ecosystem of Asian, pro-Asian groups? What would be your vision for growing both your organization and the groups that are adjacent to it? Right. Actually, right now, I would say I would like to actually have more investment in our communities because in comparison to other investments that they put every single election cycle, especially when I look at the total budget, the billions of dollars are being utilized, so little is being directed to the API community. So right now, even though we're saying that there's more, a growing number of API different organizations being built, I welcome that because if anything, I think more investment needs to be placed in all these organizations so that way they actually play a different role in every single election cycle. What's, what is your current budget? So right now we range between 2.5 and $3 million. And a lot of it is subgranted out to our local partners. How much could you use if you could really, you know, get the funders that you really think would make sense? Well, you know what? We're going to be at an interesting um, pivotal point after the 2024 elections for over a decade, um, at least ever since 2009, the Coulter Foundation is a foundation that heavily invested in the API community and building their capacity in, in doing civic engagement work. They're the largest funder in this space for this community, but they're sunsetting. So all the organizations that have been funded for over a decade, and, and luckily they've also challenged each of the organizations for challenge grants to diversify their funding. But the reality is that kind of investment is no longer going to be there. So right now we're at a point where we're trying to convince other funders, whether it's the Ford Foundation or regional funders about the API electorate and that the things that they saw like Georgia didn't happen overnight and that these kind of investments need to be had. And our biggest investor will be gone um, after the 2024 elections. What share of your budget do they provide? I mean, it, it, I would say a third. So that's really substantial. What's your best chance for replacement of that? And obviously, I was thinking you could, you'd want to grow, but keeping even where you are sounds like it could be a challenge. The reality, we're not sure that we're going to have another foundation like the Culture Foundation that's willing to invest long term like that and to work with the community and figure out how to best build their capacity. So, you know, a lot of funders, many times they'll like fund you for a year or two and then move on. But they were in it for the long haul to really try to figure out how else they can actually help this particular community in a particular state knowing that they'll be gone in a few years, right? So it really is about how we take this point in time to get the attention of other funders, especially since we got the initial investment from the Coulter Foundation. I think that has helped us get into the attention of other funders versus if we never had that funding, we would have never had been able to build our capacity to be able to do that. So like, for instance, 
for the longest time, I did not have a development officer. I didn't have a communications team, but now I do. And that actually helps us get the attention of the candidates, of the parties, of the media. But then that ultimately helps us get the attention of the funders, too. Sounds like you have plenty of challenges ahead of you. What What is the thing that most keeps you up at night? It goes back to funding because so much of it is tied to that. And, you know, like I said, I've been doing this for 28 years and I know the power of volunteers because that's where I started out with, with the organization Chinese Americans. But now I see like with investments, how much more you can actually do for the community and for them to be self-sufficient and to address the issues that are facing them. And also for us to be better allies with other community-based organizations, right? Many times I may want to be more involved with the work of NAACP or Voto Latino, but I don't have the capacity, right? And so that's why it always ultimately goes back to funding, which then leads to how we develop our organization and networks. Christine, what should I have asked you that I didn't? One of the things I want to plug is or to focus on is that the Asian American Pacific Islander electorate, 18 to 29 year olds, that's also another area that we really need to focus on because um, not only are they growing, everyone's talking about how millennials and Gen Z, if they really lean in in their elections and to their full potential, they really could change what the elections uh, would would look like and also how the political parties will react, right? And a part of that equation is the API electorate. We saw in 2018, them actually finally increase their participation rate. And that continued in 2020 in larger numbers than any other um, ethnic communities. And so that's where I really am really hopeful in terms of seeing their engagement, not only as voters, but also in terms of leaders within our communities and abroad. Do you have a sense with this upcoming midterm there's clearly a drift in the electorate towards the Republicans in public polling. How much is that happening in the Asian community from what you can tell? There's a couple of things that are happening. So one, I want to like reemphasize that both Democrats and Republicans are still underinvesting in the API electorate based on our 2020 poll. of Asian Americans said that they were not contacted at all by the Republicans. And then the Democrats did a little bit better because they they said 50% said that they were never contacted by Democrats. That's a big issue overall. The other area that we're also um, trying to invest um, more volunteers and, and develop our capacity to focus on is dis and misinformation. Because our community is not are not only on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, but they're also on WeChat and WhatsApp and Kakao. And these are private platforms that are where they're discussing um, different issues in language. And it's so easy for um, the wrong information to be injected into these spaces. And because they're closed off, there's not a great deal of fact-checking that's being done. So we're trying to get more volunteers to actually lean into their own circles into getting involved with their mom and dads and their elders to really find out what is being shared in those private platforms and to make sure that we actually fact-checked with that. So that's where I sort of see where some of this trending um, may happen because we saw a lot more of disinformation happening when there were active Republican candidates, like in Orange County or in Texas races. Uh, We saw the misinformation actually increase in those areas. Did you run across something called the WeChat Project? I have a young woman at Yale, Eileen Huang. We didn't necessarily have heard about her project at that particular point in time. But I think after the elections, we heard a a number about her findings. We work a lot with like United Chinese Association, um, um, Chinese for Affirmative Action, Pivot, you know, a number of them that are really focusing on really getting into the Chinese and Vietnamese um, spaces. IA Impact is also uh, is launching a campaign where they're focusing on Indian Americans on WhatsApp. Um, so we're all actually working together to really try to share with one another what we're hearing. And then as a result, APAVO, we're also part of a broader coalition with the voting rights organizations where we share out what we're hearing in the API space. And then 
what we hear is happening in the Latino or African-American spaces, we actually report back to our local um, partners in the API space to let them know what may be trending down the line for us as well. What's making you most optimistic? I would say of working with younger organizers. I actually just came out of a semester working as a resident fellow at the Institute of Politics at the Kennedy School. Oh yeah, I saw you did that. How was that? That was amazing. I think it's wonderful to like, especially when you're trying to emerge out of the pandemic, being around students who are fearless about um, COVID-19 and also um, willing to like just dive right in and and they're itching to actually engage with one another. I think that was really refreshing to see. Um, but it's also th- that there's so much more information that needs to be relayed. I, even at Harvard, where they have so many resources, a lot of them did not know the infrastructure within the API community, how they could actually get involved, what was already being done in terms of getting out the vote and engaging this um, voters, because they, they haven't necessarily seen it with their own families. But it was great for them to hear about what was already built, because then that way they could actually plug in to what is already has been established. So I've been telling them that they have a leg up because now so many of them are involved and interested in politics and policy. And there's actually now a support system for those who are interested in doing this type of work. Is there any kind of chart or central clearinghouse about all of the groups and how they relate to each other that like you could visualize it or understand it holistically? At least at the national level, all of us are part of a coalition called the National Council of Asian Pacific Americans, NCAPA for short. So um, these are, there's about 39 API advocacy organizations that do some type of public policy work at the federal level. And so Many of them also have local chapters or memberships. And so that's at least one easy map that could be seen at the federal level. But that's all on the 501c3 nonpartisan side of things. It is a big and complex country, I find. Christine, it's, it's really fun to talk to you. I appreciate your time. Is there anything else you want to say? I'm just looking forward to the 2022 election cycle. I think there's a lot of issues at stake. I think that the API electorate is not only continues to grow, but they understand, especially through their experience through the 2020 elections, understanding how decisions of local elected officials are making can impact their lives on a day-to-day basis. And those lessons learned are being carried forth in 2022. And so I'm anticipating a large turnout once again from this electorate. So overall, I would tell the media, the the elected officials, candidates, and political parties that they really need to pay attention and not only pay attention, but to invest and engage with this electorate, not only for this cycle, but long-term. I think a very good note on which to end. I thank you. That was Christine Chen. She is at apiavote.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.